One of the reasons that I'm absolutely convinced the Bible is true is because it doesn't attempt to present a false picture of how wonderful and perfect all of God's people are, or for that matter, the church. It tells, it, it tells us a story as it is, warts and all. And so as we read through the Old Testament, we see some of the, the, the heroes of, of the Old Testament coming up looking really bad with some of the things that they did. And it's the same with what we've just read in, in um, Acts about the early church. In today's reading, we see the good and we also see the bad. Somebody once said, if you ever find the perfect church, whatever you do, don't join it because you'll spoil it. Okay, now it's too late here because I'm already in this church, so it's already spoiled. It's going to be far from perfect. Um, but that's all right, you're here too. That probably brings, uh, brings us down a bit more. Um, but this church in Acts was certainly not perfect. Uh, but what I'm going to attack this today is there's a few themes in this reading and I want to pull out these, each of these themes and hopefully by doing that we might be able to pull it all together by the end. The first theme is fellowship. Now that's a good theme. We talked about fellowship or, or the Greek word for it is koinonia. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. One of the characteristics of a spirit-filled church is fellowship or koinonia. Last week, the topic was the name of Jesus. And what we found is that the church was a gathering of people who believed in the name of Jesus. And now in today's reading, we're being told that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That means they had a unity of belief. They had a love for one another. They cared for one another. And their souls were united in some way. And that's what fellowship is. Fellowship is when a group of people are so closely connected, our souls are connected in some way. We're we're one in heart, we're one in soul, and, and we're people of a shared destiny. Fellowship is when we know that we have this shared eternal destiny and when we realise that it's actually something that we don't have to wait for ages to come, it's something that begins now. We have a shared eternal destiny right here, right now, right here on earth. So if you don't love other Christians and if you don't enjoy fellowshipping with other Christians, you're going to be mighty miserable when you get to heaven because there's not going to be a lot of option. Our shared destiny has begun already together, God's people in fellowship. And verse 32 says that they had everything in common. And then it goes on to describe how when one of the fellowship were in need, the rest of the fellowship cared for them. Now this story is not simply about caring for the needy, although that's important too. We do need to be caring for the needy. But that's not what this story is about, so let's not confuse it with that. This story is about describing the fellowship, the koinonia. These believers so deeply cared for one another that selfishness was abandoned and selflessness and unity were embraced. I wonder how that came about. How could they come to this point of selflessness? It begins when we submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we submit ourselves to 
to Jesus Christ as our Lord, we're not merely committing our heart to him, although we are committing our hearts. We're not just committing our minds, although we are committing our minds. We don't just commit our body, we don't just commit our soul. When we submit to the Lord Jesus and make him, make him Lord, we are submitting everything that we are and everything that we have to Jesus. So when Jesus Christ is Lord, everything that we have belongs to God. Which means it's not a very big step then when some of the fellowship are in need to bring what is already God's and to allow it to be used for the needy. You see what I'm saying here? The Lord looks after his people and we expect the Lord to look after his people, don't we? Yeah? Yeah. And if what I have belongs to God, I shouldn't be surprised when God chooses to redeploy what is in my care to care for the whole fellowship. And that's what was happening here. Verse 33 describes the great grace that was upon them all. Let me tell you, to to get to this point, to get to this point to stop seeing the stuff that I have as mine and to begin seeing the stuff that I have as God's, well, that requires a great grace. That's not something which we humanly decide to do, is it? Does anyone have the same trouble as me? I like to see what's mine as mine. But to begin to see it as God's, that takes an enormous grace. And God extends his enormous grace to us the grace that we've received for the forgiveness of our sins, the grace shown to us by Christ dying on the cross for us, and then we have the opportunity to share grace with others. So Luke gives us two examples in this church. One's a good example and one's a bad example. Firstly, he introduces us to a bloke by the name of Joseph. Now, most of us probably know this fellow better by his nickname, Barnabas which means son of encouragement. And from this point on in the New Testament, Barnabas actually becomes someone that we hear quite a lot of. He becomes a missionary and he goes and he plants uh, churches in various towns as he travels around with Paul. Anyway, Barnabas, he owned a paddock and he sold that paddock and he brought the money and he laid it at the feet of the apostles. So Barnabas is redeploying what he had already what was already God's and he entrusts the proceeds to the apostles to share the money out with those who are in need. And Barnabas did an extraordinary thing. That, that's, that was a very good act that he did. He had experienced the grace of God and now he was extending grace to those who are in need. But not everybody was as good as Barnabas. And so into our story come Ananias and Sapphira. And these two, this husband and wife team, wanted to have the appearance of being as good as Barnabas, but they didn't want to do the hard yards. Their selfishness and their greed and their pride got in the way. Ananias and Sapphira also sold a piece of property, but when he brought the money, Ananias pretended, as, as Mrs. B just said, right, um, yep, here's all the money, but he's actually keeping part of it back for himself. And so he lied 
about how much he was putting in the offering. And Peter said, why would you do that? I mean, it was yours. Before you sold that property, it was yours. You could have kept it. You could have done what you liked with it. Even when you sold the property, it was still yours. All that money from when you sold your property, that's yours. Why would you lie to God by bringing some of it here and saying, here's all of it? Why would you lie to God? You've lied to the Holy Spirit. And, I, and Ananias dropped dead. It's interesting reading some of the commentaries that I've got. Um, some people try to explain this away as, oh, he just died of shock. He was shocked that he was found out and so he had a heart attack and died. I'm thinking, oh, that's a pretty big coincidence that he and his missus both, both did that. Like, this is just so obvious, the judgement of God upon this fellow. So he dropped dead. And the young men come and they pick him up and they take him out and they bury him. Three hours later, Sapphira, his wife, not knowing that any of this has happened, comes in to Peter and, and Peter says, is this how much you sold your property for? And she said, yep, that's it, that's all of it. Why would you do that? Why together would you two conspire to lie to God? You, you've got your story straight. and Why would you do that? And... Um, so she falls over dead too. And the burial squad come in the door expecting to be able to put their feet up and of course they've got some more work to do. And so she gets taken out as well. And so the second theme for today is deceitfulness of wealth. Now I believe that this is something that, that we, being a wealthy country, need to be very aware of. The wealthy, and and let's face it, by world standards, we here are all very wealthy. Um, If you've got a roof over your head, if you can eat at least two meals a day and uh, have clothes to put on, by world standards, you're very wealthy. And the wealthy are more in danger of being deceived by wealth than what the poor are. What we have can be used for good or it can become a snare to trap us, something that trips us up and leads us to our downfall. Money can be used to feed the poor, it can be used to support missionaries, it can be used to support ministry in your local church. You can use your money for a lot of good but our money can also tempt us and deceive us. We probably all know pretty well the parable of the sower, do we? goes out and sows the word and some seed falls on different soil types. Well, some seed falls on thorny ground. So when the weeds come up, the thorns come out, it comes up, they choke the crop and the crop just um, is not fruitful. And in Matthew it says that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches are, are these weeds that choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Uh, I reckon that's a pretty big challenge for us today because we live in a society that we're told, you know, if you want to get ahead, you've got to have financial goals. You've got to set these financial goals and work hard to achieve them. But I wonder, have we ever really considered, well, what are God's goals for my finances? 
I mean, it's very easy to be deceived into, well, I need more. I need a certain amount of money for retirement. I need a certain amount of money for this. I need a certain amount of money to be able to achieve the succession plan for the family farm or, or for, for whatever, to buy the next house or to buy the next investment house. But have you ever considered what really are God's plans for my finances? Ananias and Sapphira lied about how much they put in their offering. They were deceived by their wealth. I've thought about this. How are we deceived by our wealth? And I decided I'd I'd give you an example from my own life. There is an Old Testament principle of tithing. Now, because we're in Christ, because we're Christians, we are not bound by the law of tithing. I want to be very clear on that. You are not bound by the law of tithing. That is an Old Testament principle. The New Testament principle is to give as we are able. My problem is I find that I find it way too easy to spend everything I have and therefore I'm not able to give anything. Um, And so I find that for myself that the principle of tithing is actually a good guide for me. Um, so when I first started out earning $100 a week, that's a fair while ago now, um, when I first started work, that was my pay. It was tough, but $10 I'd put in the offering. And then you'd sort of build up you know, and finally you'd be on about $500 a week. Well, then $50 a week would go into the offering. And then when you earn more, finally you're earning $1,000 a week and it was still tough. But $100 a week could go on the offering. And, but then early on in all of this, the first question I had to ask, well, is this before tax or is it after tax? Yeah, and, and you sort of got to start thinking about these things and I decided, well, actually a tithe was on gross income. And so if I actually held back some, well, to pay tax or whatever, well, that's cheating God. Then when I started a business, I had other decisions to make. Do I dare to tithe on gross income with a business when you've got all of these expenses that you need to spend to generate that? Or do I tithe on operating profit or or, or on the gross margin? Do I tithe before or after my expenses come out? Do I tithe before or after we make loan repayments on on whatever land or or, um, machinery I owe? What do you do? Now, that can all be a pretty complex sort of a question. But really, it was an easy one to make because I had decided to tithe. And in the Old Testament, tithe was always on gross income. So if you had 100 sheep, sorry, if you had 100 lambs born that year, well, 10 of them belonged to God. You didn't say, well, right, well, I've got to pay for the shepherds and that, this, that and the other, so therefore that, that'll bring it back to about 80 sheep worth, so therefore I'll only give eight to God. That's not how it worked. It was, God gave me 10 lambs, I'll give him, sorry, God gave me 100, I'll, I'll give him 10 back. And so I made the decision that if I was to say that I was going to tithe, well, I'd better be tithing on 10% of the gross, otherwise it's not a tithe at all. Now, I want to bring this back to the Ananias and Sapphira example. The money, like we are to give as we are able, 
with Ananias and Sapphira, they could have given some or they could have given all of it. That was up to them. The problem wasn't that they didn't give it all. The problem was that they had lied about what they had given. And so this is an example from my life, and I'm not telling you that you have to give 10%. That, that's between you and God how much you, you give. But for me, if I said that I was going to tithe, then for me to be honest with God, it would have to be the 10% of the gross. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a tithe. It would, just, it would be giving something else. You understand? Okay. But it's very easy to be deceived myself and go, well, I'll actually keep this back to myself and I'm still tithing. Which brings us to our third theme, truthfulness. And really, that's what this reading was primarily about, is truthfulness. Ananias and Sapphira were not executed because they kept some of the money for themselves. They were judged because they lied. More specifically, they lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to God. Truthfulness in the character of the disciples of Jesus is absolutely critical. Sometimes we might find ourselves thinking, oh, a little white lie will get me out of trouble here. And sometimes we think a little white lie will be the best thing for here because I'm not going to hurt that person's feelings or, or whatever. And we can justify it. And, we, and so we think a little white lie. There's another name for a little white lie. Does anyone know that name? A dirty great big lie. A lie is a lie is a lie. There's no such thing as a white lie. A white lie is a dirty great big lie. And as God's children, truth should always be on our lips. Jesus said, I am the truth. And if we are the children of God, we must also speak the truth. In Revelation chapter 1, Sorry, 21, verse 8. It's coming right at the end of Revelation and, and Jesus' return and, the, and, and, and judgment is happening. And it says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulphur, which is the second death. Let me tell you, lying in the church is something that is so horrendous that God had to deal with it right there and then to serve as an example for that church and for us today and as a warning for us. Lying is totally out of place. And so God judged it, which brings us to the fourth theme, the fear of God. Verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. That's not surprising, is it? Imagine if something like that happened here today. Imagine that, that, that the Apostle Peter was here and somebody told the lie and, and, he, and he rebuked them for it and they carked it. And then somebody else, a few hours later, comes in and the same thing happens. Imagine what would be said around town. What, what, don't you think people would be filled with fear? I, I know that all of us here would be filled with fear if we saw it happen, wouldn't we?
the fear of God, I believe, is something that we as a generation actually need to rediscover. Christians and non-Christians alike need to rediscover the fear of God. If there's one thing that this story of Ananias and Sapphira should remind us of, it's the day of the Lord. The day of judgement. The day when Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. But most people are totally oblivious to the day that is coming, the day of the Lord. People do not have the fear of God and that's something which is decreasing more and more. You know, there once was a time when, when Granny was dying in hospital, first thing they'd do is call the minister, quick, we've got to make sure they're right with God before they die. Do you know how many times I've been called to the hospital to somebody on their deathbed in the last ten years? Once. And that was after they'd gone unconscious. And I couldn't talk with them. The fear of God isn't there in the community. People these days generally have more so the attitude, I'll take my chances, thanks very much. But even as Christians, I believe we need to rediscover the fear of God. When C.S. Lewis wrote his Narnia series, he was writing a fantasy story, but it was actually describing Christ and the gospel. Did you know that? Yeah, some of you do. And Aslan, the lion, is the Christ figure. And I reckon Clive, that's his name by the way, who knew that? C.S. Lewis, Clive is his name. I reckon he gave a most marvellous example in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe of how we should fear God. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr Beaver. Don't you hear that what Mrs Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. We should never presume upon God. God is God. God is all-powerful. He is the creator. He is the redeemer. He is judge. And we don't need to be scared of him, but we do need to fear him. And I know I've used this illustration before, but I'm going to use it again because I think it's a helpful one. When I was going to school many years ago, the school principal was feared, not only by the students, but by the teachers as well. He was looked up to. He was respected. He was honoured. When we spoke to him, we spoke to him with the utmost of respect. Now, I wasn't scared of him. Uh, some, of the, some of the naughty kids were. I wasn't a naughty kid. I was a good kid. Some of the naughty kids were scared of him because they were on the way up to the office to get the cuts. Uh, but I wasn't scared of him, but I did fear him. 
Do you get the difference? Now, I don't think kids today have that same fear for the school principal as what we used to in my day. And I don't think most of us Christians fear God in the way that we should fear God. We need to respect God with the utmost of respect. We need to honour God and trust in God because he is good and loving and kind. I mean, we don't have to be scared that, that we're going to you know, be judged because Jesus Christ has taken our sin away and we're pure. He's taken our judgement for us. But we still need to have that healthy respect and honour and awe for God. The fifth theme is evangelism. And we're going to see this theme coming out right throughout the whole book of Acts. Evangelism is key to everything that this church did. And this reading begins and ends with evangelism. Right at the start, verse 33 said, And with great power the apostles were giving the testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. Right? This is, that's evangelism. They're giving their testimony about the resurrection of Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And then right near the end, chapter 5, verse 14, it says, And more than ever, sorry, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Evangelism. This whole story is bracketed by evangelism. Start and finish. You know, when a church has gone through a period of growth, it's very tempting for us to take a, a big deep breath and take a bit of time to, to consolidate and develop the fellowship and concentrate on our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. Uh, now, if, we, if that's all we do, then there's something missing. And that's evangelism. The purpose of the Christian fellowship is not just so that we can feel good about ourselves. Christian fellowship is a witness to the world. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples because of the love that you have for one another. He was describing the fellowship. It's a witness of the reconciling work of Christ. God has reconciled us to him and therefore us to each other. And this is a witness to the world. Fellowship and evangelism go hand in hand. You know, some churches, they, they, all they do is they focus on their own little cluster and, right, we're just going to get all this right. Some churches, all they look at is, right, we're always going to be out inviting. But it all goes together. Fellowship and evangelism, hand in hand. And so evangelism is critical for a church but to what result? I'm going to finish with verse 13. Verse 13 says, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Now the way that reads to me, um, it seems like there were onlookers and they felt drawn to this Christian community. They felt drawn to the fellowship. They felt drawn to this Jesus Christ whom they were hearing preached. And they, they looked at these Christians and they held these Christians in high esteem. But they didn't dare join them. 
And that describes many people today. There's all sorts of reasons people come to church. There's all sorts of reasons people don't come to church. Some are lookers. Some are tyre kickers. They're seeking something but they don't really know what it is that they seek. Some are having troubles in their life and they're just wanting to find answers to satisfy those. And they're drawn to to the community. Some are looking for personal validation of their own spiritual ideas. They've got in their head their own picture of what they think God is like and so they come along to church to see, well, does that line up with what I think? Some are seeking friendship or strength or moral guidance. Some admire Christians because of their good works that they do or because of their social responsibility and generosity. But they do not dare to join them. They don't dare to give up everything that they have to follow Christ. They don't dare to risk persecution for the name of Jesus. They don't dare to give up their own ideas about God and to believe about the God who is actually revealed to us in Christ and testified to by the apostles. And my question for you today is where are you at with God? Have you dared to become a disciple of Jesus? Or do you just esteem the disciples of Jesus? Are you one of the disciples of Jesus or do you just like to hang out with disciples of Jesus? Do you dare to believe in Jesus? To give your heart to Jesus and to become his disciple? Do you dare? More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. And the Lord was miraculously healing the sick and delivering them from evil spirits. Many came believers in Jesus Christ, but many did not dare.